great day to flex your freedom. I'm your host, Barb Allen. Today, I am sitting here with Gary Brugman. And if that name rings a bell, it should. And if it doesn't, it really needs to. Because, wow, what what a crazy, crazy story. You all know our border is, is a big, big, big problem. And I don't know if you remember one of the stories that probably pops your head when you hear about this is there was a photo of border patrol agents supposedly whipping um, illegal immigrants coming across and what a big hoopla that was, right? But even before that, I mean, issue after issue after issue and our border patrol agents are on literally on the front line of our country doing their best to defend us, to keep us safe and to help and keep safe people who are crossing illegally right? Because they're they're going through horrific conditions to get here. But oftentimes the people they're stopping turn on them. I mean, I cannot even imagine what it's like to be a border patrol agent, especially if you happen to be Gary Brugman. Um, Gary was accused of, of a crime on his job. I'm not going to go into that. I'm going to let Gary explain it here. And then he was convicted and sent to prison for a couple of years all the while and continually to this day maintaining his is it his innocence um, we back him a hundred thousand percent and fortunately President Trump did too because he issued him a pardon and that is why Gary is back out here with us today but his struggles did not end when he got out of when he got out of prison and he's just he's been through it man so let's get into this we're gonna talk about this we're gonna talk about Gary we're gonna talk about your story we're gonna talk about the border and what it's really like there we're gonna talk about what prison was like, what it was like to get pardoned, um, what, you know, when you found that news and coming back out, what you've been through since then, since you got out. Gary Brugman, let's get into it. Um, life as a border patrol agent. I'll tell you what, life as a border patrol agent, uh, despite everything that goes on is, is a pretty good life. You know, they make good money. They got a lot of respect. Uh, they work hard and, um, it's, it's, it's a great job to have. Um, for the most part, you, you got to deal with a lot of stuff, a lot of politics. Border Patrol has always been, been the black sheep of the uh, federal government. It used to be the black sheep of the INS. Now it's the black sheep of the DHS. I mean, it's always something being a Border Patrol agent. But, you know, when when I was joining back in 1998, one of the slogans that my, my, my class, my session had was the best job in the world. And I still believe that because I've been out of the Border Patrol since 2004. And uh, not one day has gone by that I don't think Border Patrol. I mean, I've got Border Patrol everywhere. It's in my blood. My blood's green. So it's a great job. What? Why did you decide on that in the first place? Well, I grew up in New York City. I went into the Coast Guard. I did nine years in the Coast Guard, all, everywhere from Key West, Miami, Fort Lauderdale, all the way up to New York, Long Island, New York, and um, traveled across the country, trained in other units. And uh, I wanted a career in law enforcement. I wanted to get into police work. I was a reserve police officer in Florida. And um, I wanted to get into wherever I can. For some reason, with my enlistments, it never worked out because I applied for the Border Patrol three times. The first time, Hurricane Andrew came through. I had been accepted. Hurricane Andrew came through. I was living in South Florida. I never got my acceptance letter. I found out I was accepted like a year later, so I never got the letter. <laughs> the, the second time around, I was fighting to make it happen. It was like in 96, I think it was. And my enlistment was up. 
And I had, I had a, I had a wife and child at the time. I couldn't just get out of the military. I'm like, what do I do? I'm down to the wire. I've been accepted. Haven't gotten the letter. I kept calling twin cities and they said, well, it's going to be on its way. It's going to be on its way. Came down to the final day. I extended my enlistment for two years. And two weeks later, I get the letter saying to report to Chula Vista, California. And I tried getting out of my enlistment. They were like, nah, you enjoy the next two years in the Coast Guard. You're not going anywhere. <laughs> so the third time was a charm. The third time I applied. And mind you, every time I apply, I got to go through the whole thing through uh, um, OPR, uh, going the investigation, the whole thing. It's the whole, they, they don't carry anything over. It's the test. It's everything. So the third time I went, uh, I got discharged from the Coast Guard on February 22nd, 1998. And I swore in on duty on February 23rd, Monday morning at 10 a.m. So I spent 10 hours unemployed. And I chose the Border Patrol because during 92, we, uh, during the first uh, Haitian coup of, uh, when they overthrew uh, Aristide, we were were gathering up the uh, Haitians that were leaving the island on on these little rafts and these little boats and stuff. We had a lot of INS agents, Miami police, and I started talking when we had some Border Patrol agents on there, and these guys were the coolest these guys were the coolest. I said, that's where, I, that's the direction I want to go. So I had applications in everywhere, marshals, ATF, FBI, Border Patrol, obviously, and a bunch of police departments, New York City, Nassau, Suffolk, New York State Police, uh, e- even, even, uh, even LAPD. And the Border Patrol just happened to call me on the right time frame. So, and right, I'm glad so, I chose it too. So most of us don't really know concretely what what a day in the life of border patrol agent is right we're dependent on the news or social media posts and all that to see what it's like and and what we envision it to be you know on the mm-hmm. news or social media you see clips of people crossing the river and you know you guys coming in to try to get them you know you see the night vision you see people running around but um what is it what is it actually like to go out there how long are the shifts were you when so what were the years that you were in the in the border patrol, serving in the border 98 patrol. 98 to 2004. 92, okay. So what was the border like then? It actually for a little while. And where while were you? In, where were you on the border? In Eagle Pass, Texas, which has become okay. really popular these days on the news. So okay, that was yeah. my station was Eagle Pass, Texas. And, um, you know, when, when you get there, it's, uh, let me tell you, the border patrol is a completely different type of law enforcement. You know, with all due respect to my police officers, my deputies, my state troopers, um, if they if they roll up on the scene and there's five, six, seven guys there, they're calling for backup, you know, because or if they something goes on, they're calling for backup. We roll up on 40, 50, 60 people and it's like all of y'all get on the ground now. <laughs> you know, it's just a different type of law enforcement. Yeah. It's not uncommon. Uh, me, me, myself, all by myself in the middle of, of the brush, in the middle of nowhere. I've arrested 78 people. That's my biggest catch by myself, 78 people. And oh basically, God. it's just like that. All of y'all get on the ground right now. Um, we, we think different. It's a whole... I had a trainee one time, and we, we stopped the vehicle, and it took off on a... It was a Bronco, and he went through a fence, and we were 23 miles from town. It was just me and him. It went through the fence. 18 people came flying out of that Bronco. We caught them all. We sat them all down. Some of them had attitudes. We, we chilled them out. We sat them down and we, we called for transport. And about 30 minutes later, a supervisor rose up in a Ford Crown Vic and he's like, did you get them all? And we're like, yeah, we got it. He goes, transport should be behind me about 20 minutes. 
and this was already 30 minutes in, we're here with this group. The guy that I was training was a former uh, auto theft and narcotics police officer in Puerto Rico. And he said that this is crazy in Puerto Rico. If you're in the police department and you got a vehicle running, you know, all the units are going to back him up. If he goes through a fence or starts going up, man, you got helicopters, you got SWAT, you got everything. And out here in the middle of nowhere, it's me and him and the supervisor. You get them all? It's just a totally different breed of law enforcement. We're, 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 we're different. But normally, you know, you got we got three shifts. You got morning shift, uh, swings, which is afternoon and, and midnights, just like every other department. And um, they, they switch every now and then. We don't have definite partners, you know, like police departments get together and they have the same partner all every day so that they learn to work together. We all got to work with each other because you never know who's going to be off. And the agency grows and, and shrinks in size. So we, we all rotate, you know, on a, on a daily basis. Um, <clears throat> you go out and uh, you got sensors. You look at the sensor traffic. You get a brief uh, at muster like from the prior shift, find out where the traffic's going. And they, they, it's a great job, man, because they give you these cool uniforms. They give you a badge. They give you a gun, all the ammo you need. They give you usually a brand new vehicle all the time and go go four by foreign and uh, protect the nation. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a fantastic job. I bleed for it. Wow. But uh, I'm sorry. I uh, ha- had some COVID last year and still got some chest problems. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely want to get into that too. Let's talk about but, all your pain, Gary. Let's talk about yes. all of it. <laughs> so, <laughs> but no, it's, it, Barb, it's, yeah. it's, it's such a great job. If I were to describe everything, I mean, you know, you, you catch, you catch uh, illegal aliens enter the country and that's, yeah. that's what they're called technically, you know, in, in, in the books, illegal aliens are not undocumented immigrants. They're not uh, whatever they want to call them. They're illegal aliens. That's, that, that's mm-hmm. what they're called. And, um, but when you get the drug traffic or you get the, the, the child trafficking or you get the money, you got a bunch of stuff coming across, that's where it gets exciting, you know, because for, for a couple of hours, you could be dead doing nothing, sitting there under a tree, just watching the river. Next thing you know, such as this morning, uh, I was with a partner of mine. He, his father-in-law was in a hospital. He was here with me. He was, he's my old partner in the border patrol. We talk, he was talking to another agent. They had a bailout this morning in Crystal City, just south of uh, Eagle Pass, and shots were fired. Apparently, some alien pulled a gun. I don't know all the details, but it happens just like that. And then everybody comes steaming. You go, you do your job, you catch the dope, you, you do everything you're supposed to do. Next thing you know, you're back quiet again. It's just like a big adrenaline dump. And wow. these agents. So talk for a second. Hang on. Talk for a second about the types of people and the types of thing you see coming across the border. And you're still in touch with people who are who are serving the border patrol now. So Every this day. is true now as well. And I'll assume, I guess, unless you point out, you know, no otherwise, but what are the things like, you know, we're told by a certain political party here, right? That everybody coming across the border is innocent person fleeing persecution in desperate need of sanctuary and safety and is a good, solid law abiding citizen who is just in fear for their life. And, uh, and of course you want to help that person. Right. And then we're told that these people are mercilessly separated from their kids and put in cages and horrible things happen to them, or at least we were told that is what was happening. Right. So what is, what is the reality of the kinds of people, wh- what is the diversity of the, what the makeup of the people that you encounter crossing the border illegally? Well, traditionally 
during my experience and the years that I was in and before yeah. that, traditionally, it is, you know, the Mexican family or the foreign family that's coming to look in, come into the United States and build a better life for themselves because this is the land of milk and honey, right? Mm -hmm. This is where all dreams come true. And it is as, as imperfect as this country is, this is the country to do that in. Um, traditionally, that's the kind of person that comes in. And I've seen a lot of those, but just, just like everywhere you go, there's bad people everywhere. And especially with this administration now and a couple of administrations back, their view on immigration is completely different. They don't want to help the people. They want the votes, you know, they want the votes. So they, they, they cease from vetting everybody that should come in because right now it's an open border. Yeah. You know, and like I said, traditionally it's the mom and pop or the land landscaper looking to make a big business for himself and, or, or whatever. But now you're getting all these young guys that are all military age. There's video of hundreds of them crossing. You know, you got a few women in there, you got some kids and everything, but these people are sending their children to cross into the United States with people they don't even know. And they're sending them with, 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 uh, on, on birth control with, with condoms because they know that they're going to get sexually assaulted. And I can't even picture coming, sending my kids off into nowhere, knowing that they might be sexually assaulted just so they can have a better life. I can give them that better life. No matter. I can, I can be living in a hut and give them that better life. Yeah where they'll be safe. I don't understand it. But so then the pushback we hear on that, the pushback we hear then is imagine how terrible it must be for a parent to make that decision. You know, imagine what they're saving the child from. And I don't know enough about it to know what's true. I believe that probably is true in a lot of cases, but I also um, have heard and read and watched other interviews and, you know, saw enough where where I'm hearing about kids being trafficked and smuggled across the border um, as well. They're, they're, and, yeah. I'm sorry. They're being snatched up. They're being snatched up right. as they're on their way here. They're being snatched up while they're still in transit. And, um, and, and it's true. I mean, imagine how bad it's got to be for you to do that. I can, I can agree with that, but a lot of these people are not doing that. There are a lot of these people just being greedy because once the kids get here, they can petition for their parents. Okay. You know, and it's just a big, it's, it's just a big crime organization. And what this administration is doing is bringing these people in furtherance of the border, which is one of the terms that they use to, to prosecute people. You brought an illegal alien in furtherance of, you know, but it's, it's a crime because now the cartels are getting involved. The cartels are shifting people because it's died down here in Eagle Pass, Texas, just a little bit. And now they've shifted towards... El Paso and in, in just the past couple of days, because it's gotten too hot here. It's all over the news. Now they're shifting them over there okay. because the cartels making money hand over fist over this thousands and thousands of dollars per person. And they're putting a lot of pressure on the border patrol agents with the things that they're seeing. I mean, we've had two agents commit suicide in the Rio Grande Valley and two agents in one week committed suicide, you know, and just, just the whole PTSD that these agents go through, through that, because you don't have to be in, in combat to suffer this. Just watching these people coming through and you not being able to do what you signed up for is traumatic. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I myself, I'll tell you what, I had my life figured out when I was 20 something years old, when, when I was in the military, because I knew I wanted to be a law enforcement officer and retire from it. And at age 31, I had, I had fulfilled that. I had done nine years in the Coast Guard. I got into the border patrol and, and had, had my situation not happened to me, Barb, which we'll get into, yeah. had it not happened to me, 
I would have been eligible for retirement in February of 2018 because I came in in 98 at age 51 with 29 years of service. Wow. And I got zero. You know, oh, wow. had, I still, right. had I still been in right now, I would have been mandatory retirement in 10 months at age 57. So let's get into it then. Let's talk about how, how your career took <laughs> a very unexpected turn. Hmm. So we're going to start from the beginning. <laughs> yeah. All right. There, there's, there's a couple of phases to this, mm-hmm. Barb. Um, there, 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 let's just call it three for now. Yeah. Walk us through. So, so first phase, uh, January, January 14th, um, 2001, nine months before 9-11. Okay. So I, I, was on, I was on patrol with my partner, and I tried to condense it because I could drag this out for two hours. Um, I was on patrol with my partner. A group of 15 crossed the river. They were spotted. Me and my partner responded. Uh, one agent started giving chase, but he was, he was on foot. He couldn't catch him. We, ch- we ran up in the vehicle. I jumped out. I was a passenger, started chasing them on foot. My partner went around, tried to cut off the river so they, w- they wouldn't jump back into the river. I was losing them. I was yelling for him to stop for about a 15-minute run, about almost a mile and a half in Spanish. Parense, parense, stop, U.S. Border Patrol. Another agent and his trainee got ahead of me, caught the group. The trainee caught the group. He was trying to get them to sit down, and I was coming from behind him. I was coming from like his 7 o'clock. Mm-hmm. And um, he was trying to get them to sit down. Some were sitting, some were standing. There were two behind them that were squatted down on the ground with their bags and were doing this number. And it was it was about 7 p.m. in January. Half the sky was dark, half the sky was light, you know, in a pecan orchard. Uh, I couldn't see from where I was at exactly what was going to happen, but I saw them moving. I didn't know if they were going to jump the agent or, or uh, try to make a run for it. They had already been apprehended. It would have been an escape. So I ran up, I flanked him, I put my hand on my weapon on the bottom of my foot, I pushed him on the ground, knocked them both on their ass and said, sit down. And then I asked him, why are you running? You know? Um, and that was it. We transported them, sent them back to the station. They got processed. And that's the end of phase one right there. Right. Six weeks later, I was on patrol, same, uh, same area, a little further south with, with another partner of mine. And by this time I was on mids. I was on midnight shift and it was about 4.30 in the morning and they had a load of dope coming across, seven, seven mules with backpacks, seven, seven smugglers with backpacks. We call them mules. Right. Uh, I didn't want you to think they were actual mules. Nope, <laughs> nope, mules I, got, I got it. I think Biden did. I think Biden referred, yeah, that, yeah shockingly. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so Biden, in case you're listening, he's not yours. talking about actual mules. <laughs> I'll go ahead. <laughs> Sorry, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that guy. But um, yeah, so by the time we got there, they had already jumped the group and they had dropped the dope and ran. Um, we, we rounded up five of them. Two were missing. And the infrared camera tower, the, 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 the agent at the station spotted them hiding in some tall grass about uh, two fields away. So he guided me in on them. And I had my night vision and I went over a barbed wire fence and I saw their silhouette. So I put it down and I started walking towards them and they saw me and got up and started running. Here I am again, chasing them. Parense, parense, border patrol, parense. They ran. They came to a barbed wire fence. They, they, they hit a right turn. I was still on my probably about, man, a little more than arm's length behind a second guy. And I'm trying to catch him. But, you know, I got 38 pounds of gear on. 
the first guy, they came to another fence line, the fir- a barbed wire fence, and the first guy dived between the strands of fence like Superman. And they do that. It's pretty impressive. They kind of scrape themselves like uh, right in between. Like, and you hear the clothes ripping and everything. It's like, oh, man. The second guy didn't have time to do that, so he kind of hit the fence and flopped over. And I was like, you know what? Screw it. I got body armor. I got momentum. I'm going over, too. So I hit the fence, and now all three of us are on the ground on the other side of this fence. I'm getting up. The first guy got up and ran. The guy that was right in front of me was getting up. I got him by the legs. We started tussling. I'm not letting him go. Next thing I know, I see my feet in the stars in the same picture. And I said, oh, this is going to hurt. And he body slammed me on the ground, jumped on top of me, tried to choke me. I took a swing. I missed, and he pinned my arm down. So now I'm lying, Barb, I'm lying flat on the ground on my back. He's got this hand pinned to the ground, and he's got his right hand on my throat. And I've got, he had a polo shirt on, and I've got him by his collar trying to keep the pressure off my throat. And I'm like fighting him. And I'm like, first thing popped into my mind, oh, my God, I'm losing. (laughs) I'm losing. This this isn't right. And when I looked around, we were in tall grass. It was probably about a foot and a half, two feet tall. Well, when I looked around, all I saw was grass. Mm -hmm. Um, He was sweating on me. I can can still smell and and taste his body odor because he was sweating right onto my face. I saw the look in his eye. And he was, he was smaller than me, so he, he couldn't get that pressure that he needed on my throat because right. I, I was keeping him off, but he was trying. And uh, he, he had uh, three buttons, and I looked at one of his buttons, and a bunch of things started going through my head. I was like, if I can get to my gun, that's where I'm going to put the bullet. And I was, then, I, then I thought, I'm going to have to turn my head. I said, I'll probably lose an eardrum. And as soon as I said that, I started seeing yellow spots. I said, oh, my God, I'm going to die. And I said, so this, this can't be how it ends. So I did what every tough kid from Brooklyn veteran would do. I said, God, please help me. <laughs> God, please help me. And um, somehow he did because I managed to break my hand free. I struck him on the right side of the head, on his left side of his head, and he fell. And I immediately rolled over on him. And now he's on the ground, and I was putting my forearm into his throat. He was, tr- he was flailing, and I felt him grabbing at my gun belt, mm. specifically at my handcuffs. Right. And I was like, all right, this has got to stop here. No more. Right. So I wound up, and I punched him three times in the nose. Uh, on the second one, I felt it break, but he was still flailing. So I hit him again, and his eyes rolled up, and he was like, officer, please don't hit me no more. And I told him to stop fighting, you son of a bitch. Mm-hmm. And I told him that in Spanish, too. So he understood that. I said, pues no peles, puto. <laughs> you know? And um, other units showed up. He, he, he gave up. And I was in the tall grass, so they couldn't see me. And I can hear him on my earpiece. So I raised my hand, and they saw me, and they, they cuffed him up, and I laid there. Well, Barb, what happens? Uh, about three or four weeks after that, I'm at the range qualifying. When I get back, my boss calls me into his office, tells me to unload my weapon, and I'm under investigation. Why? We don't know. What do you mean you don't know? It's not us. It's not the Border Patrol. It's some other outside agency, which was the office of the Inspector General. <clears throat> why did they? So for, why was the office of the Inspector General involved? Well, for 18 months, I didn't know. No, but, so I went to trial 18 months after the investigation started. 
So what happened that day, though? Were you escorted out? Were you told? I, uh, they, they took my gun away and they told me that they wanted me to go work in the garage. And I was like, oh, hell no, that's not happening. I contacted the union rep. Then they agreed that I, I didn't sign up to go work on cars. That's right. I'm, I'm a border patrol agent. I'm not a mechanic. And um, so they agreed that I was I, I was put behind a desk. I'd be working the cameras for until further notice. That further notice was another 18 months. <clears throat> So they did an 18-month investigation. At month 14, I got a letter from the U.S. attorney stating that I was a target of an investigation. I was like, yeah, no shit, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> no kidding. I've been behind the desk for 14 months. Now you're telling But I'll tell you what. They did this investigation. They took me to trial. And not once did anybody ever ask me my side of the story. I never saw an investigator. Nobody asked me no questions. Nobody. Mm-hmm. And you're, you had a defense attorney? <laughs> um, after I got the letter at 14 months, right. yes, because I didn't even know what I was being charged with. Right, right, right. So, so your defense so attorney it, didn't, uh, didn't think that was unusual? We brought it up, ma'am. I'm sorry. We, we brought it up and they, the, the court didn't really care that they didn't talk to me. Oh, love yeah, it. I Gotta mean, love it. What were your charges? Yeah. What were the charges? I was charged with 18... Uh, section 18 of the U.S. Code, uh, Section 242, Subsection B, which is deprivation of rights under color of law. 18 U.S.C. 242, Subsection B, deprivation of rights under color of law. So that, that was your charge, ironic, deprivation of rights under cover of law. That was what you were charged with. Deprivation of rights under color That's it. of that law. That was your only charge. Yes, ma'am. Okay. So apparently. And, and over and over, I, I was like, well, how this guy slammed me on the ground. Yeah. This guy was trying to choke me out. I said, he's alive. I went through every level in the use of force continuum, right. officer presence, verbal command, soft, empty hand, hard, empty hand. And I stopped there at hard, empty hand because I didn't shoot him. Right. He's still alive. So what did I do wrong? And it's, what's crazy is now you, you, you stay with me here because this gets a little confusing. So the drug smuggler's name was Miguel Angel, right? Miguel Angel, Miguel Angel Rodriguez Silva, right? Okay. So when I get the letter, and I remember the date, it was February 22nd, because I remember it was my anniversary that I came into Border Patrol, that that incident happened. So when I get the letter, it says I'm the target of investigation on January 14th with Miguel Angel Jimenez Saldana. And I'm like, who the hell is that? And that's not the date. So I started going through the files, Barb, for, for about two months, there's files missing from the government computer. So I went to the, to the boxes, to the hard, you know, the, the papers that we filled out. That one specific paper for that date was missing. Where is it? The only way I found out who this guy was that I remembered was one thing they didn't get to because they made everything disappear. One thing that they uh, didn't get to was... <clears throat> I went to the muster sheets, like the roll call sheets, and that was still there for that date. And I remember who I was working with and where, and I was like, ah, that's when I pushed that dude on the ground with my foot. So that's what I was being charged with, not the dope smuggler. Oh. And all this time, I thought I was being charged with beating right. up a dope smuggler. So the, the guy that you just pushed on the ground is the one that filed the charges against you. Correct. And so who, when you say they made it disappear, who is they and why would and why would they do that? I don't know, Barb. 
Yeah. Doesn't you know, that I got, just I got, piss you off? Doesn't it just piss you off? Like, like for when you don't even know who or why, it doesn't it seem like there were better things to do with time and resources than to expend all this time and energy on you for pushing somebody to the ground who was crossing was our borders illegally and, and potentially a threat to your partner's life. Like that was, that is freaking maddening. So you were sentenced. You were, yeah, was, you didn't sentence. So at the trial, they finally took me to trial. Right. At the trial, um, Jury, jury selection started Monday morning. The trial started about 1 p.m. on Monday. They, they, the, the Asian and his trainee were flipped to testify against me. And that's, there's, there's three different stories, all right? So let, let's stick with the illegal alien that I pushed on the ground. So they, they, they brought in the trainee agent, right? Yeah. He had four days on the job when the incident happened. Right. They brought in the trainee agent. He says, I ran up, I kicked this guy on the ground, and I started punching his ribs so hard that he can hear the breaths coming out of his body going, ooh, ooh, ooh. And it, that's exactly what he did. That's right. verbatim. And then I grabbed the second guy, threw him on top of the first guy, hit him, and then possibly some punches to a third guy. Well, they only had the one guy, right? The illegal alien that apparently kicked and punched. He says, yeah, I pushed him to the ground, but I never punched him. He says, no, he never hit me. And then the third agent, which was the, the trainee's journeyman, says, yeah, I didn't see him punch anybody, um, but I heard, the, I was like 80 yards away, but I heard the kick. So you're telling me you're three quarters of a football field away and you heard me kick this guy, but that, the guy can't remember what side I kicked him on a year later, <laughs> you know? That's so, so three weird. That's so weird. Like for what, you know, why, why would they, do that. And when those stories don't line up, even the guy you kicked is saying, no, he didn't hit me, but the one guy is saying he hit me. So it's clear that there's not, you know, all the facts are not coming out and they still, they still convicted you. Right. Well, hold on, hold on, Bart. it gets better. Okay. So, so that whole thing ended about 1030 in the morning. The government said, you know, that they're done with that. They, and they want my, my lawyer cross-examined. They wanted to bring in an additional witness and the judge allowed it. They brought in the dope smuggler. <laughs> that, they brought, oh and this God. dude came in. And let me tell you, Barb, my, my, they approached the bench. My, my attorney came and started talking to me. And I'm, he's telling me, I'm like, no, no, they can't do that. It's got nothing to do with this case. I mean, right. it, doesn't even, it, doesn't even, it doesn't even prove that I had a history of it because it happened after. Right. You know? So, so I'm, telling, I'm over here arguing with my attorney. The door is open. Right. The, the doors open up and this dude walks in and he's got the U.S. Marshal behind him because he's still in custody. They ridded him out of prison. Wow. He's got the U.S. Marshal and transported them from Pecos all the way across Texas to uh, to testify. He, and so when you walk into the courtroom, the prosecution's over here. Um, I'm over here. The judge is up front. So this dude scans the room and he sees me. And as he's walking, his eyes are honed in on me. So my reaction is. Right. I got yeah. up. Okay. I got up and I, he eyeballed me all the way till he got on. He sat in, he swore in, the marshal sat behind him on the stand. And for the next four hours, Barb, wow. this dude was staring at me like this. And I sat down, I crossed my arms and I was staring at it. We were locked and they'd ask him a question. He turned his head, answered the question, turned right back at me. 
Right. And then when he left four hours later, it was a reversal. He got up off the stand. I stood up and he walked out. Yeah. And uh, the judge, William Wayne Justice, asked me. He, he dismissed the jury and he asked me, Mr. Bergman, what was that all about? And I said, well, Your Honor, I said, that man had nothing to do with the case I'm being charged with. And I don't know if anybody's ever tried to physically kill you. But if they did, I'm pretty sure if they put him in the same room with you, you wouldn't be sitting down either. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And he says, and he said, point taken. Right. So anyway, that's how the trial went basically like that. The U.S. attorney, when we were talking about when I pushed the guy on the ground, uh, the, the, uh, the assistant U.S. attorney says, so you ran up and you wound your leg up to Cincinnati and you, before you proceeded, <laughs> that's, what, that's what he said. And you proceeded. And before you proceeded to kick the bejesus out of this band, you you were yelling, so you like to run, huh? And he and and then you proceeded to kick the bejesus out of him. I said, I don't know what comic book you've been reading, sir. I said, but that didn't happen like that. I said, I didn't I didn't kick him, I pushed him. It's called right. a front kick, but I pushed him. Right. I said, and I didn't say, so you like to run, huh? I said, why are you running? Completely different question. Right. It is. All but right. Barb, so that's basically we gotta, I, there's a lot I want to get to here, um, including uh, including what you were convicted of. And then we have a, a couple minutes. Let's talk about the time that you spent in prison. So you find out in, in court, the jury comes back and finds you guilty. And now do you say, were you married at that time? No, you were not. No, married. I had, I had a, I had a fiance at the time, uh, okay. but she dumped me while I was in prison. Okay. <laughs> right. But um, yeah. So um, when, when the verdict came back, I was pretty sure I was going to be found not guilty because right. how could you convict this? Three different stories. Yeah. At the time, I had no idea that Austin, Texas, which is where the trial was at, was like the San Francisco of Texas. I didn't know that. I would never agree to having a trial there. But when they came back guilty, um, the court reporter covered her mouth and, and started, she started crying. Hmm. And I felt this bucket of water just get dumped on top of me. And... Um, the judge let me stay out on bond pending an appeal. Thank God. So I stayed out for another year before I even went to prison. So what is that? Like? What, did you, what, what were you doing in that year then? So you're convicted, you have an appeal out and you're just supposed to go live your life. Were there rules set on you? Were you told you can't go here? You can't go there. Or was it just like, what was yeah, that? I couldn't, I couldn't travel without permission. I was under a, I was under a probation officer, U S probation. Okay. Um, I was under a probation officer. I had to check in with him and if they, they weren't too bad. They let me travel where I wanted to go. I went to Arizona twice to see some people and um, they let me do that because I'm not, I wasn't really a flight risk. But how but are you supporting yourself in. then? Yeah. How are you supporting yourself? I was, uh, I was selling cars. Okay. <laughs> I was selling cars here in San Antonio. I moved from Eagle Pass to San Antonio and uh, I was a car salesman for a little while. And then, um, I decided I was going to use my benefits from the military and I started going to school, working on my bachelor's degree. I'm, I got a bachelor's in uh, business administration and management. And that's when I started. It took me eight years to get a four year degree, but right. you know, prison kind of broke that up a little bit. Yeah, but you did it. All right. So a year goes by, your appeal happens. Right. Marshall's come in, um, kicking my door because I had self-surrendered to the government twice already. My, my attorney called me and he's like, Hey, you need to go turn yourself in twice already. So I was waiting for that phone call because right. I knew I had lost the appeal. I was waiting for that phone call so I can go turn myself in. But nope, they came, 
busting down my door. Uh, they didn't take it off the hinges, but they practically did. Pushed my then 76-year-old mom on the ground about 5 o'clock in the morning. Took me in and I uh, was gone for two years. Wow. So when they took me in, they took me to downtown San Antonio, put me in a, in a contract prison, you know, a civilian prison under a federal contract. Then they put me on Con Air, took me to Oklahoma City, to the transfer center. I was there for a couple of months, and then I got staged, I got uh, placed in Coleman, Florida, at a low, low-security prison. I was there for, I forgot how many months, four or five months. And uh, I ended up, I, the Mexicans found out who I was, and I ended up getting jumped by the Mexican population. And I got, I didn't... Uh, I didn't get more time for it. I didn't get more time for it, but I ended up uh, being sent to the penitentiary in Atlanta, to the high security, to the penitentiary in Atlanta, Georgia. And I was there for about another two and a half months. Then I got downgraded to Yazoo City, Mississippi, where I finished out. And, you know, in between each, there's there, there's a whole bunch of uh, time in solitary. I spent a little over, if you take the whole 20, 24 and a half months that I was in prison, I was in solitary 24 hours a day, uh, almost a little over nine months of it. Oh, my God. What is that mm -hmm. like in solitary? When you and I were talking when I was in Texas a couple weeks ago, you you shared with me a little like snippet of what it was like for you. And that has just stuck with me. It is just such a powerful image. So can you talk about that then when I asked you if there was a window in the cell, that in your solitary confinement so cell? Right. So, so in one of the cells that I was at, um, there was a, because there's a, I got a, believe me, I got a couple of window stories, but there was one where there was just a, a, a frosted window and it, there was a little, a, you can only tell if it was daytime or nighttime, but there was a little strip and it was literally like maybe a quarter inch by an inch. There's a little strip that was curling up on the, on the film. And I would lean down and it, it was like a foot off the ground at the very bottom. And I would just lean down there and I'd look outside because it was the only view that I hadn't seen outside in, in weeks, you know. And they allowed you to go outside once a day. But in order to do that, you had to, uh, you had to strip down. You had to get shackled on your feet, handcuffed to your waist. They take you out and then they strip search you on the way out and then on the way back in. And by the time you get out there, you only have 30 minutes because it takes 15 minutes to get you out there, 15 minutes to get you back in. You know, so so I just passed on it a bunch of times because I didn't want to keep strip searching every right. day. Right. But but yeah, no, but you look out and this, you know, and ironically, and one of them, one of the views that I had was the Bear County Jail, which is a jail here in San Antonio. And I was like, great, I get to look out at another prison. But in between there, I could see uh, the highway, which was I-10. And depending on which way the traffic was going was the time of day that I knew it was. Wow. You know, and it's, it's just... <clears throat> Just being being locked up all all day long, and then when they transferred me, Barb, when they transferred me, um, when when they're gonna transfer you, they won't tell you. They'll they'll just shut off your phone, and then you they have a call out sheet which you have to look at to see if you have any appointments. And when you see it says R and D receiving and discharge, it's like oh shit, they're moving me. You go try and make a phone call, let let your family know your phone's already cut off. Wow. So. So I went on one time when they moved me, I think it was when they moved me to the, uh, to where was it? I want to say it was Yazoo City, Mississippi. I went on a food strike because I wanted to talk to my mom. My yeah. mom didn't know where I, 
They kept me in transit for 16 days. My mom had no clue where I was. That is so I went on a food strike for four days. That is just crazy, crazy, crazy to hear. So I'm just trying to imagine what that is like, you know, if for all of us, we could sit here, like I'm looking out a window right now, I'm looking out two gigantic windows right now, you know, and I just don't even stop to think about what it would be like if I couldn't even see out, out a window, um, because somebody oh. had just taken that moment, taken that ability away from me for no cause. You were in prison for just over 24 months. Yes, ma'am. So was that your full sentence or did, did you get out earlier? I I got a, I, I lost some good time, but I got out uh, three months early because my sentence was 27 months. Wow, crazy. All right. So you get so, out. Picture this, Barb. Picture this. I mean, I know, I'm pretty sure you have a nice bathroom, right? I'm pretty sure you have a nice bathroom. Pick, sw- swap your tub out for a, a mattress and picture staying in there from, what, what are we in November? Picture staying there until next July. Yeah, that I can't. It, I really just cannot even pretend to have the ability to comprehend what that would be like. I, I just can't. You may as well say, "Hey, rough. hop in your car and you know, fly to Mars magically in your car." Like I have just <laughs> as much ability to do that as that. And I, you know, here's hoping I never, never find out. Right. So talk about the day you get out. Then the the very day you get out. You step so, outside so the prison. Who is anybody before there? I get, before I get there, for for many for for a long time, when I was out on the on the grounds of the prison, I had to walk around with uh, magazines, like like my car magazines or or yeah. whatever. Um, I I tape them to the inside. I tuck them inside my pants and tape them around with packing tape because they want they, they wanted to stab me because I was a, I was a border patrol agent in prison. Oh my God, if you ever been in. If you ever been in federal prison, there's a lot of yeah. illegal aliens in there. And um, yeah, so I had to threaten that eventually when I was at Yazoo City, Mississippi, eventually I got high tech enough and I made almost like a, a body a vest out of packing tape and newspaper that I used to wear under my shirt tucked into my pants. But um, I had to do 11, uh, 10 weeks in a halfway house here in San okay. Antonio. And I'll tell you what. Barb, if I knew the halfway house was going to set you up for failure the way that they did, I would have really? stayed in prison in solitary for another 10 weeks. Oh, man, there's so much to dig into here, Carrie. Um, I'm going to have to have you back for like 50 different episodes and, and talk about all of that. You know, systems that are in desperate need of repair and and all of that, because um, that's just- We can continue tomorrow. One after another, after another, after another, after another thing. And so, um, all right. You get through the halfway house experience, which I definitely do want to have you back and talk about when we mm-hmm. go through. There's just there's just so much to unpack here. Um, and in the time since you get you're out of prison and you're you still have the the label. You're still felony. you were a felon. Hmm? And I, I was an aggravated felon because I pushed him on the ground. Okay, so, so I used sports. Aggrav- well, yeah, I'd be aggravated too, you know. Um, and so you go through all that. How hard was it for you to get back into life and society? I mean, you had to be a, a changed person after that experience. Well, when I went to prison, I was friends with most of my companions and friends were law enforcement officers, police officers, sheriff's deputies, state troopers, federal right. agents. Same, same when I got out. Good. All right. When I got out, hung out with all my law enforcement friends. They Good. said it took me almost two years to get back to normal. Um, I would be on a, I would be on my motorcycle because I didn't have a car. 
So I'd be on my motorcycle and and um I would leave and I'd go out for a ride or go run errands and I'd turn around and go back home because I thought I was getting too far from home. Oh man. You know. What was that like? I mean, what was it the process for you to get a job and find a place to live and do those things that we need to do to take care of ourselves? I mean, was so, the media look, attention around you then? Like, did I, did you walk around uh, and people know who you were or nobody gave a shit who Gary Brugman was? You were just kind of- uh, at, fir- at first, nobody cared. Okay. At first, nobody cared. Uh, I wasn't big news. Back when this happened to me, it was uh, 2001. I was in prison from 04 to 06. And uh, the internet and the MySpace and yeah, the social wasn't media- really Facebook, there yet. Does, That do, started when I was in prison. Do you ever think about that, Gary? I do in our case. I think- my husband was killed in 2005. The trials took three and a half years and social media was really just starting to come out. I see cases happen now. It's all over social media. The support, the eyeballs that are on it, I think over and over and over, I think so many times I'm like, if we had had social media then and I could have really shared what was going on and given the inside site and people would have cared, I don't think that that my husband's killer would have been acquitted. I don't think that the military would have been allowed to do what they did. The military judicial system would have been allowed to do what they did. Do you spend, I I know it's not healthy to spend time thinking about it. Like we'll get into all the self-help, but I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about the natural inclination. Do you ever wonder what it would have been like if you had had social media access back then? I do. I do because I've said that because I'll tell you what made my case popular. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you remember another Border Patrol case by the same guy that prosecuted me. There were two Border Patrol agents in El Paso that uh, ha- were, jumped a load of dope and the drug smuggler pushed one agent in the ditch and pulled a gun out on the other one. Yeah. The agent shot. He ended up shooting him in the ass. Ramos and Compeon. Yeah. Right. This was in two. It happened in 2005 where their case got big media attention because it was on social media. Right. And Glenn Beck got involved and a lot, Laura Ingram, a lot of people got involved. Even Congress got involved in that one. So they did a congressional inquiry on the U.S. attorney that prosecuted those guys. Okay. And they said, hey, hold on a second. Check this out. He's done this before. And there was my name at the bottom of the pile. Okay. So that's what brought my case to light was their case. Had their case not happened, nobody, I probably wouldn't even gotten a pardon yet. So do you, you know, think because that right now, the fact that that, the, that prosecutor had a track record of doing this to you, did that play in favor of the next two agents? It sure did. It sure did. And because he, he, not only did he do it to them, he did it to another sheriff's deputy. So there's, they call, at the time they were calling us the Texas Four because okay. we were four law enforcement officers that got prosecuted by the same U.S. attorney, all for civil rights violations against illegal aliens. Crazy. You know, me, me guys, being the first. Are you guys in touch? Did you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah we are. All right. We so, are. Actually, uh, two the two agents also got a pardon the day before I did. Um, but Gilmer Hernandez, which is the sheriff's deputy in, in Rock Springs, Texas, in Edwards County, he didn't get a pardon, so he's still trying. Um, and, and he really deserves one, man. He, he, he's, he's a really, really good Christian guy. And he really deserves one. I'm still trying to help him with everything that I can. But yeah, back then, cell phones were new. And right now, whatever happens, everybody's got a- It's right there. Nothing happens. A new broadcasting station right here. Yeah. You know, they go go live and it's just a whole different world. You know, and I got a lot of help from, you know, from Fox News, from Glenn Beck, from a lot of people over the past 20 years. And, you know, Barb, it's kind of crazy because I think about this. I think- um, 
Would I had liked for this not to happen and not spend two years in prison? Of course. <laughs> of course, I would rather not spend two years in prison. Of course, I didn't want to get prosecuted. Of course, I didn't want to be a felon. I would much love to have been able to retire in 10 months with 34 years of service to right. federal service to the country. But Barb, I've come across so many amazing, amazing people in my life on this journey that I consider family, you included. And, you know, my friends, Ed Hendy in Houston, who's been my mentor since I got out of the prison, he just found me. My phone rang one day and he was at the other end of it. And man's words were, somebody told me your story. I want to hear it from you. And I told him and he was just disgusted with it. And he says, you know, I'm in a position to help you change your life if you allow me to do it. And I said, well, sure, why not? And he has. And he, he, calls, me, he calls me every day. For the past 15 years. I talk to him every day. I love that. You know? I love and that. He, he is an, incre he's wow, an incredible person. that just makes person. me like all emotional. If <laughs> now, Barb, now, now here's the deal. Yeah. Given the, chance, given the chance to have my life all over again, would I rather have a retirement and not have gone to prison right. and not have these amazing people in my life? I don't know if I can do it. Don't get me wrong. I don't, I don't have shit to fall. I don't have anything to fall back on right now. You know, I'm going to work till I'm 74 yeah. and then I retire for 30 minutes and go back to work, <laughs> you know, uh, but, uh, but, but I have, I surround myself with good people Yeah, and I, and I, and I love doing that. I know it is, it is really, uh, I think humbling to think sometimes or inspiring to think, I look back what you say, I think about my own life too. Um, you know, I can't, I can't change that. My husband was killed of you know, and given the choice, I would obviously, that, that would be my choice to keep him alive. And to have I, have him, right? of course. I don't get to make that choice. So on the, on the flip side, I am then just awestruck by the people that have come into my life in so many different areas. Sometimes they're just strangers who would like walk up to me and say something really profound to me in a moment when I really needed it and it would strike me and lift me. And then, and then, and I never saw or heard from that person again. Sometimes they came forward and helped in different ways. Sometimes there are people who are still by my side. Um, sometimes they're just people that whose stories I see and inspire me and touch me like all the different ways and the ways I have been stretched and pushed and grown. Um, so you are, you are also an example of that, I think, uh, in that out of the worst freaking nightmares that can, that can happen if you just don't give up, you can come out the other side of it. Never quit. You just cannot, you just can't give up because you don't know what's going to happen in your next breath, in the next hour, in the next day. Like you just don't know. And if you give up, you'll never know. And so you'll never know. Exactly. If something could have been different, if you had just tried one more time, like taken one more beat, one more second, one more call, like what's that? And then, you know, you just got to, you just got to encourage yourself with that. And I'm so glad, I'm so glad exactly. you didn't give up, Gary. I'm so glad you didn't give up. <laughs> and you know what? Don't, don't get me wrong, Barb. There, there have been times that I'm like, you I'm know sure. what? I am I'm so sure. done with life. Yeah. You know, I'm so done with life. Lord, please take me. I'm I'm done. Yeah. I'm done. And um, but you know, quit isn't in my vocabulary. And sometimes I really wish it was, but it's but it's not. <laughs> I hear but, you. I totally get that. I completely <laughs> understand. You know, we we, we talked about this. It, yeah. It's not in my vocabulary. Yeah. And you know, 
so so I got pardoned by President Trump. Right? right. I got pardoned by President Trump. It was. Did you know incredible. that was going to happen? Was that like a surprise? How did you find out? I knew I was on the short list. All right. Okay. I knew I was on the short list because it um, had to do with the social media and the media attention and all that. Like that helped. No, I, ha- I had a lot of people pushing for me. Right. Okay. I had a lot Good. of people pushing, and 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 I know that they had made it to his desk. Okay. I know that. All right. I know, had, but there's no there's no guarantees, no promises. Right. So um. So. I got the I got the call on Christmas on Christmas Eve Eve December twenty third of twenty twenty, and I got the call from uh from from the White House. Actually, my friend Ed in Houston had actually intercepted the call because he had a big part of being my representative and stuff. Sure. And uh, I'm on my way to Fort Worth with my mom. Uh, she was eight, 87 at the time. She's suffering from dementia, and I'm going through. I'm about an hour and a half away from Fort Worth, and he calls me and says. Hey, be ready for a phone call soon. Something came up with your pardon. Uh, we got to settle it. We got to, something came up on your background. We need to figure it out. I'm like, what I do? Yeah. And he's like, he's like, I can't talk right now. Be ready for a phone call. I'm like, damn it. For, for the next like 75 miles, I'm like, what did I do? <laughs> <laughs> I said, I yeah. said, could it be that lieutenant I may have slapped in? The- <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> you know, could it, could it be something I did in a minute? What, what is it? What right. is it? So he finally called, he FaceTimes me back, has me pull over. And he's and and his wife Nina, she's got the she's got the White House on her phone, and 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 he's like Gary, we're here with with the White House. You need to explain this to them because they need to talk to you. And I was like, what did I do? And they're like, well, Gary, on behalf of President Donald Trump, we wanted to congratulate you on a full and unconditional pardon that he just signed for you an hour and a half ago. And I was oh, like, oh, nice, what? wow. And and I was like, you're you're kidding me? Is this for real? And they're like, oh yeah, hold on, here's the press release. And they started reading me the press release. So I started crying. Uh, I started crying. And my mom, she's like, what happened? I said, this is good, mom. Don't worry. <laughs> I got a pardon from the president. She's like, really? Uh, and she had some dementia. And the greatest part about her having dementia was she got to enjoy me getting a pardon like five times. <laughs> <laughs> mom, I got pardoned. Really? <laughs> mom, I got pardoned. Really? <laughs> That's great. That's great. Have you ever met Have you ever met Trump or got to speak no, to him directly? So- no, so um, I got invited to the White House mm-hmm. on January 6th. Okay. <laughs> and I was actually inside the White House when that happened, when they breached the White House. He was out giving a speech, and I was inside visiting the White House, waiting for him to come back in. But then that happened, and they brought him into the situation room, and then we had to leave. So I never got to meet him. However, I was at a town hall in, in South Texas a few months after that, and uh, he was like, six feet in front of me. So I yelled at them and said, thank you. And one day I hope to thank him personally because he changed my life. Yeah. He made my mom really happy. And there's that man cannot do any wrong by me. I don't care yeah, what I anybody bet, says. I, I mean, that's a big one, right? That's a, I, that's a big, uh, I will honestly, I will honestly give my life for that man and his family. I believe you. I believe you. All right. Here in the last couple of minutes, I want to go, we talk, obviously the show is flex your freedom. It's very relevant. Your freedom was taken away. <laughs> you know, for doing your job. The freedoms in our country, I believe, are under attack right now in so many different ways. And the border being a major one of those, right? What you have been through as a result of serving your country, our country, and then this is how the country repaid you, right? Um, Or your experiences, however it is you came out of it. Did that, has that changed? Are you, are you, what are your feelings on this country now as it stands? Because 
Am I bitter? Is that what you want to ask? Yeah. Me? Like, are you bitter about, I didn't want to put words in your mouth, you know, but like, right, are you, right, no. are you, people ask me, are you bitter about the military? You hate them. I don't hate the military. I hate what happened to it. I am passionate about defending the people who serve in the military with honor because I don't think that they should be at risk of the same thing happening to them. I don't feel like they should have that concern. I feel like somebody should be watching their backs better than they are. So I that's agree. where my passion lies. I, am I bitter? Hell yes, I'm bitter, but not in the way that people think I am. So that's what I was trying to figure right. out is if you have some some sort of similar feelings you know, or you know, where do you stand that, on that, that? That's kind of a, that's kind of a, a, a difficult one for me yeah. because um, it's been so long, Barb. It's when, when I got my pardon right. was three weeks shy of 20 years from when the incident happened. Right. Um, I've been, I've been out of prison since 2006, since March of 2006. So I'm going on 17 years of being out of prison. Have I been better? Yeah. Hell yeah. I've been better. Um, there was one point in prison. I wanted to go back to Mexico and, and, and kill everybody involved. <laughs> you know, I don't think it didn't cross my mind. I, every, everybody's yeah. done. Yeah. You know, but but I'm, but I'm, but I'm a Christian and, and, you know, I'm a, I'm a God fearing person. And the only way, the only way I could really put the screws to this U S attorney and everybody that burned me is get a pardon, get a pardon. Yeah. You know, um, I had too much to lose. I had too much to lose. And, uh, I got tired of being angry and bitter. Mm-hmm. Let me, uh, real quick story. I know you got, just a few minutes left. When I first got out of the prison, I used to go to the hockey games here in San Antonio, right? Yeah. And I would not stand up for the start for the for the national anthem. Oh, wow. Okay. Hell no. Yeah. Why 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 the f would I? Okay. So I had some people trying to help me when I started my first business, starting a Maco tool truck, and my friend Ed helped fund that for me. We got donations from across the country. Glenn Beck helped me with it. Laura Ingram, a whole bunch of people got together, raised some money, and I got I got myself a tool truck. Unfortunately. Cash for clunkers deal that Obama did put me down the drain, but I ran a successful tool truck for a couple of years. People were sending me donations and notes, $5, $10, $100, $500 with letters. And I still have most of them. There was one girl, Nicole Van Meer, and I actually just met her last year. She was seven years old at the time. And now she's, uh, she's in medical school going to uh, be a occupational therapist. She wrote me a letter and sent me a check for seven, $7 and 62 cents because she said that she, she sold, she always sells lemonade at her dad's poker games and gives the money to veterans where her dad had seen me on the news and told her to send it to me. And she says, she don't know what I did wrong, but she hopes I can have a happy life like she can one day. Oh, that's amazing. I still have the letter. I love it. I still have the letter. Love it. And I found her on Facebook and I was telling her and she talked to her dad and he's like, yeah. And she's like, yeah. So last year I actually met them in Florida. Oh, that's so cool. So that little girl changed my whole outlook. And that's when I realized something, Barb. It's, it's not, it's not the country that sucks. It's not the people. Although some of them do, but it's not the people, it, but, and it's not the government. It's who's in charge of the government. Right. It's who's in charge of the government that, that, ma- that makes this country go up and go down. You know, per- perfect example. Look what happened during the Obama years. Look what happened during Trump years. This country boomed mm-hmm. in four years. It boomed. And then look what's happening now. It's not the government. It's who's in charge yeah. of it. And that's where the problem Up lies. I had agents telling me that they're sick of the Border Patrol and they want to quit after what happened to me. And I said, no, don't you dare. I said, be the example. Change it. Make your way up the ranks and change it and look out for the agents. And, you know, yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not bitter. I love my troops. I think about the Border Patrol every day. I love this country. 
It's not perfect. It's far from perfect. But we're still in the best country anybody can ever live in. Yeah. You know, we don't have to. We don't, we don't have to worry about invasion or any. I mean, well, the worry's always there. It's the world. But, you know, we're safe for the most part. You think we are? I don't I don't know if we are really much anymore. I think that's up for debate. I, but I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. We're a hard target. In comparison to other countries. Yeah, compared in comparison to, yeah, to other I think, countries. And I never would have thought that. I think a couple of years ago, I would have been like, hell yeah. I, but I think now, woof, we are... We're, we're in it now. We're in it. I think we're we are. we're circling some dangerous places. All right. Scary last, times. Right last now, question man. to you, and this is a vague one, so you know, have fun with it. But um, what does what does freedom mean to you? Wow. Um, freedom. First of all, freedom isn't free. <laughs> you, you're gonna you're gonna pay for it. People don't realize the freedoms that they have in this country, and like I said, it's not perfect. Um. You don't know what you have until it's taken away. Just like a loved one. You don't appreciate them until they're taken until they're taken away. Be it a friend, a family member, whatever. You don't appreciate them until they're gone. And that's when you're like, man, I wish I could have spent more time with that person. Man, I wish I could have done this. When something happens to you, I had everything taken away from me. I lost my career. I lost my fiance. I lost my family. I didn't see my mom for two years. Um, my freedom was taken away. And when it, even when I was let out of the prison, I wasn't free. You know, because I was still restricted by what I can do. I couldn't carry a firearm. I couldn't I couldn't get up in management. I was stuck to labor, hard labor jobs. I mean, it was real difficult. Once I got a pardon, so many doors opened for me. People don't realize the freedoms that they have and they need to really, really enjoy them because we have a we have a lot of freedom and liberties in this country. And, and like you said, it's it, we're we're in hard times right now. But in the world, you're still in the best place you can live in the world, freest yeah. place you can live in the world, you know. Agreed. And and there's there's no there's no stopping there's no stop to what you can do if you want if you want to work hard and, and and be a millionaire you can do that in this country. <laughs> it's hard to do anywhere else. It's it's the it's the freedom to do whatever you want, which is what this country allows. Love it, Gary. Thank you so much for taking time. I know time is especially precious, um, to, to you, um, you know, it's precious to all of us, but I think you have a deeper understanding and appreciation of time, (laughs) you know, than most people. So thank you for choosing to spend it here sitting down with me. I really appreciate it. I know our community is going to love it. Tell them where they can connect with you online on social and find you and track, track all things, Gary Brugman and what you're doing now. So I am on almost I am almost on every major uh, social media platform that there is, except for YouTube, because YouTube just took my channel down <laughs> because I spoke about the election in 2020. Uh, so they took my channel down a year and a half later. But you can find most of my episodes. I'll be uploading the rest of them to Rumble. They'll be on Rumble. I'm on Instagram at Gary.Brugman, Facebook, Gary Brugman, Twitter, X, letter, uh, letter X, Border Cop. Um, just Google my name. I'm, I'm, I'm there. I'm not that hard to find. And we're going to get you to come to our great American summit in June as well. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. Thank you so much. 